This is a podcast brought to you by Tourism Geographies, an international journal of tourism space, place and environment, and published by Taylor and Francis. In 2022, Tourism Geographies was ranked second in Scopus Site Score Tracker in Tourism, Leisure and Hospitality Management, and second in Geography Planning and Development. In 2023, it's on track to be number one with a site score of 24.4 as at the 5th of August. Welcome listeners of the Tourism Geographies podcast. With me here in the room is Edward Huybens, professor and chair of the Cultural Geography Group at Wageningen University and research in the Netherlands. Um, Edward has recently published an article in Tourism Geographies titled Tourism Earthly Attachment in the Anthropocene. And we're going to discuss this uh, article today. And as I usually do, I'd like to ask the podcast speakers to introduce themselves. So, Ed, yes, a little bit more about yourself. <laughs> Thank you, Marta. Um Yeah, I mean, the, the titles were neatly elaborated by yourself, indeed, Chair and, and Professor of Cultural Geography at Wageningen. But maybe what's important in this contest is to note that uh, I've been here four and a half years now. Um, and I'm originally from Iceland, uh, although my name is Dutch. My father comes from Amsterdam, so I have Dutch roots, but I'm born and raised in North Iceland, where I studied uh, till my uh, end of my bachelor's in uh, geography. Uh, but then I moved to England, where I studied uh, cultural geography or, or spatial theory mostly, and did a master's and PhD at Durham University. Then I came back to Iceland and ran the Icelandic Tourism Research Center, and my only credentials for entering into tourism research were the fact that I had been a tour guide in the summer uh, since the late 90s into the early 2000s in Iceland. Of course, a fascinating place to tour guide in the sense that, uh, yeah, it's uh, amazing nature and all that. And, uh, and I was very knowledgeable about it due to my geography uh, background and, and training in, in Iceland. So I would take tourists around the country and, and show them around. Uh, and giving, uh, and, and this, this sort of qualified me to lead the development of Icelandic Tourism Research Center, which is interesting in itself, but goes to show, of course, the, uh, the, the nature of tourism studies is sort of a two bent. It's an academic exercise, of course, but it has a very applied dimension to it. Now, that being said, I ran that for about 11 years and, uh, and, uh, there we had, uh, and by the time tourism in Iceland had grown exponentially, from about 100,000 annual visitors to about two and a half million. And the research agenda there took a good shape. And also the research uh, uh, on tourism also took shape in the hands of various uh, stakeholders like uh, consultancy firms and uh, engineering firms that could advise a lot on the applied aspects of tourism and give good data and research into that. The gap I saw was uh, sort of more uh, explorative, speculative, research in tourism, sort of blue sky academic type thinking, uh, which was of course being done within the universities, but at the same time there was a, there was a need to uh, maybe formulate or work more concerted into, into that direction. That, however, was not the direction of the research center, or at least where the board did, they wanted to keep the applied dimension strongly uh, in there. And the, with that, I said, that's fine, and there are plenty of people who can do that, but I went sort of to explore my own academic uh, World and, and ended up here in Wageningen. Wonderful. I had uh, had no idea of this background of yours, even <laughs> though I've known you for quite a while. And uh, 
yeah, that that seems to be very helpful to have this background and now moving into this, as you described, more explorative research, mm-hmm. which will we we be uh, be talking about today. So in your article, Tourism, Earthly Attachments in the Anthropocene, this notion of the Anthropocene features very strongly. So it's a notion that actually sets the stage for some of the main arguments that you develop in this paper, also in relation to what you term earthly attachments. For many listeners, I'm sure the Anthropocene might be a very familiar idea or concept. It's the current times we live in. Uh, but I would nevertheless like to invite you to describe what the Anthropocene means and how you link it very specifically in this paper and elsewhere to tourism and the post-war period. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, the, it, Anthropocene, it's a rather technical term and it, it's a geological idea. It, I'll start off by saying it's heavily problematic, the term. There, it's, it's a lot of nuances and ins and outs of it, which warrant, and warrant a debate on its own. Primarily, one basically this the notion of the anthropos as basically humanity to court, you know, all of humanity as somehow one undifferentiated whole, which is of course can lead to problematic assumptions in people's minds. But let's start with the, defining the concept. So, as I say, it's a geology idea. It, it's a claimed shift in the uh, sort of geological periodization that the, uh, the geologists have. So. We know that the Earth's history is about four and a half billion years, and uh, it's separated into various phases, epochs, eons, all kinds, you know. There's the dinosaurs, they were up 60 to 65 million years ago during some particular geographical, the ge- geological era. Then these, these are, and you can look this up on, online to see the sort of geological stratigraphy chart, very fancy. So the time since the end of the last ice age, so the period of the ice age was named the Pleistocene. Then the time as the last ice age ended, about 12,000 years ago, we have a period called the Holocene. And hollow notion drawn from Greek, basically meaning new, because what you could see in the geological strata after the end of the ice age is a blooming of life, flora and fauna, that you can see in the strata. And, and just everything like the whole world transformed. Of course, the glaciers left. So you have hollow scene, the new era, right? Uh, and now we're saying 12,000 years later that that has ended and we have the Anthropocene, or the era by which you should see the activity of mankind, humanity, or the Anthropos in those layers. So all of a sudden, blooming things of, of, of mankind. And there are many others names given to this, but, uh, but for instance, can we see plastic in the geological strata? Well, maybe for a few hundred years, but probably no more. So the question is then, what becomes this marker of the human activity? And, and where can we find this 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 particular marker, which could be legible in geological strata for time to come? And interestingly enough, the geologists have defined that. They, they say that uh, it will be the radioactive isotopes from the ocean and surface nuclear testing that started in 1945. So you will see that for millions of years to come. So let's say alien geologists of the future come back and they're trying to reconstruct this stratigraphy. They may be able to say a change in those layers from that time and thereby marking another era. Well, how meaningful it is, radioactive isotopes compared to, for instance, the Holocene beginning. How meaningful also from the perspective of if you look at the whole stratigraphy chart, you see periods who are very long, spanning often hundreds of thousands of years, even millions of years. 
Holocene and the Pleistocene was a few hundred thousand years, if I remember correctly. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking 12,000 years and then an Anthropocene. I mean, humanity, of course, on the Earth is, is a blink of an eye. Isn't it uh, egocentric to the, abs- to the extreme to talk about, like, the human age? So it's problematic. And I want, uh, But in the article, I'm not going into all of this today. That doesn't matter. But I relate it, however, to the onset of the Anthropocene and this notion of a human-made era or epoch in, 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 in geology, I relate that to uh, start date of 1945, which also actually marks a market shift in our sort of socio-economic uh, stru- uh, structures. And the argument I make, and I'm not the only one to make it, of course, is that in the, in the Second World War, we basically developed a immensely productive apparatus. I mean, the military industrial complex and all that, but uh, all of this. So basically, we could we created an immense apparatus of production in the war. And then the war ended. And what do you do with this? And uh, there are there are famous quotes from uh, people in, in the US, uh, Victor Lebao, for instance, who says basically, hey, we need to shift the focus of this productive apparatus to consumption. He talked even about the forced conscription of people to become consumers. So we see it. There is there is a there is a massive increase in all all levels of consumption in the post-war year, and that's part of this graph that the Stockholm Resilience Center and colleagues there have promoted called the Great Acceleration. We have these socio-economic trends which take and the curves take on a hockey stick shape, the exponential growth in the post-war years. This coincides with our notion of the Anthropocene and also the the popular understanding of the Anthropocene that us transforming the planet as in terms of climate change. But what is important here, and, and, and this is uh, here I'm drawing on, on the work of Lewis and, and, and Maslin, who basically actually have the date set somewhere else. They set it at 1610 uh, with the demise of the indigenous population of the Americas. And when they collapsed, you know, then reforestation took over and, and that provided for a market dip in CO2 in the atmosphere, which then they claim, claim is, is, a, is, is a geological market, they say, is, is, is of note. Yeah, sure. But what they are saying is, more importantly, is that linking the Anthropocene with a particular story, with a particular framing. And in their case, similar to what I argue, in their case, they are linking it to globalization of the world through mercantile capitalism, slavery and triangular trade and all that, and saying this is the fundament that has sort of brought us to where we are in our climate crisis and predicament. Similarly, the Great Acceleration saying the same, you know, our consumptive overdrive is, is is leading us to this climate predicament. And indeed, uh, Jason Moore and others will argue when they call it not the Anthropocene, but the Capitalocene, that the roots of our current predicament lie in our consumption and our, cap- our capitalist system. So that, that's the core argument I built in the paper, is that the Anthropocene is about our consuming the planet to death, which lies in the logic, the very logic of capital accumulation, which is the very logic of capitalism, which, as uh, Mark Fisher calls it, has now by now seamlessly occupied the horizon of the possible, literally. I mean, we, we only understand the world through the lens of capitalism. It's like it's cultural appropriation maxima. Uh, so, that, okay, fine. And that's actually the bridge into tourism. Because what is tourism? It's all about consumption. It's about our our life as consumer, our, our identity as consumer. We we don't travel now out of uh, well of course we do travel for work and, and out of need uh, and there are many ways to travel but 
tourism is most generally perceived as about fulfilling desires in terms of what you do, activities that you undertake and you pay for. And indeed, one of the graphs on the Great Acceleration is international inbound tourism, and we all know it. It's famously promoted by all industry associations everywhere, showing that graph from the UNBTO. Tourism growing from 1950 to 2030, 1 1.5 billion international inbound tourists, you know, all that. It's that graph. It's one of the uh, Great Acceleration graphs. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Ed, for tying this all to tourism. This acceleration of consumption is not necessarily driven by the whole of humanity oh. in its totality, but is linked to a very specific, very affluent part of humanity or anthropos. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's one of the one of the problematic assumptions around the Anthropocene and, and basically saying humanity as a whole as being responsible for climate change or whatever. There is obvious differences in this. And I mean, we all know this. I mean, uh, it's still to date, I think 80 to 90 percent of international travel, probably around 80 by now, is, is Western Europe, North America. If you go to a, a remote mountain village in Laos, uh, uh, you know, and, and they cater to tourism, you're most likely to meet their Germans and Americans. I mean, it's just the way it is. So, and, and this conveniently and neatly maps onto, of course, the world of wealth distribution. I mean, whereby the affluent part of the world is indeed Western Europe, North America, whereby wealth is concentrated. We can unpack that story. I don't think we should go into that here, but it's, of course, amazing to see how that, where, where from it's drawn and which legacy it draws on. Uh, triangular trade and enslavement, of course, being one. But then again, the basic point is that when it comes to tourism, we obviously have a group of people who are able and willing to travel, not only in terms of affluence, but also in terms of, for instance, accessibility. I mean, if if I'm a Palestinian passport holder, I don't get very far, to be honest. But an Icelandic passport holder myself, the world is more or less open to me. So, and I, I can afford to. So, the impact of tourism, which have been documented, of course, in, in a vast amount of literature, they are disproportionately brought about by a particular group of humanity, be it basically West European, North Americans mostly, and then, then sort of filtered out. We have growing, we have growing groups. We have uh, growing groups of, of Chinese travelers and, um, and, and from, of course, from other countries. But sort of roughly speaking, we cannot speak about one humanity as corresponding to the impact of tourism generally. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Well, then I think now that we've defined this broadly, I think it's, it's great to go into your article a little deeper in terms of what you propose mm. a way forward. Uh, in fact, you propose that uh, creating thick and rich stories can counter these current consumptive desires, uh, desires that, that, that now I assume um, understand tourism as this practice that is based on the consumption of places and cultures and a practice that is currently extractive, exploitative, mm -hmm. um, productive of very unsustainable and even unlivable conditions. My question to you is, how can stories that you define in your, your paper, how can stories help us get through these major existential dilemmas <laughs> of which tourism is part? And, and particularly since we've now defined this specific social group that contributes to this problem. Yeah. Whose ears must these thick and rich stories reach? 
Yeah. Now, <laughs> this is a this is a thick and rich question. Let's call it. <laughs> and uh, and let's let's break it down into some some manageable parts here in in a sense. So one indeed one of the recognitions of humanity being differentiated is the fact that geography matters, place matters. I mean, climate change will play out differently in different places. There will be different impacts and different consequences in different places, and there will be different reactions by different people through different institutions and and societies towards that. Not that I'm trying to downplay the the, the calamity that that, that that it entails, but it will be very differentiated. That's key points. Place matters. And the stories of places, I mean, the, the, the history of a place, how it came to be the way it is and how it will then be able to cope and deal with the future in whichever context that is, matters. So this is very fundamental. And it's an old truism, geography matters. It does. So we need to sort of move away from imagining sort of the God's eye view of the earth as, and, and looking at the earth as a, oh, climate change. It's like the engine of the earth has gone faulty and we just need to fix that. And we see that with notions of geoengineering. There are people who really think like that. They say, like, oh, I'll just like take this distance view and then, then I'll just geoengineer the problem like an engine. It, it's crazy thinking. It's insane. And we see it. It's insane. And I think even those proposing geoengineering know it because they will test out their exercises in places not their own homes, interestingly enough. But that's another story. So we, we, need, to, we need to come down to earth. Yeah? That's one part of the imagination we need to deal with. The place matters. Where we are, when, now matters in our bodies as well. And that's, that's maybe a longer story. So that's one. The other part I want to talk about, so place matters, that's one part. The other part is what are the stories we are telling ourselves today? What drives tourism? That's something I'm challenging people to interrogate. Why do you travel to the places you travel? What, what, what are you seeking? And of course, people... Again, it would be very different, differentiated. Uh, nobody will, and nobody's going to say, oh, I go to places to consume them and exploit them. Obviously, nobody's going to say that. I mean, and, and, but still they may do so, even inadvertently. The main question is, what, why do people go to places? And if we sort of generalize this picture, what we see is that uh, people are, they have, they have, again, like Mark Fisher say, capitalism has sort of like consumed our horizon of the possible. It's like it's the only thing we see. And what's invested there is always more is better. Growth is good. Almost even as, as some used to say, greed is good, which of course uh, absurd. But uh, growth is good. More is better. So you need to travel further. You need to travel more often. Then you're happy, right? If you don't take a holiday for a whole year, like by going somewhere, you're unhappy. I mean, you you will like lose something. I mean, at least in terms of social status, you will obviously lose something. I mean, but just, I mean, if if you don't go anywhere for like a whole year or even five years, my God, just try to reflect on it. Just take out your holidays, take out your travel from your life and see see who you remain as, you know? So that's a thought exercise I want, I challenge people to do. Is your travel only about going to places to take it off to say, like, been there, done that. Is your travel really about fulfilling, well, what? Fulfilling what? That you cannot feel, fulfill at home. Why is sitting on a beach in Thailand somehow better than sitting on a beach in Sandford, in the Netherlands? Okay, weather aside, climate aside, but generally, what is it that you're seeking, you know, and which you cannot then reach at home? So, Not that I'm going to tell people what to do. That's not the point. The point is just interrogate your own desires. 
or your own motivations for travel? What is it that drives you? And once you realize that what what drives you or what motivates you to travel is actually something that, well, is sort of the buzz in the air and somehow the society has sort of made into traditions and, and, and acceptability, well, maybe then you can start to think of other ways of framing it and storying it and telling it. And then if you couple that with the richness of places and with the richness and the fact that place matters, well, then maybe you just look underneath your feet. Just look around yourself, where you are right now, and where are the holiday dimensions therein. So that's what I've argued for in another place where I talk about backyard tourism or stay home tourism or other types of things, which could be good in the way of uh, of, uh, of countering uh, carbon emissions from travel. Slow tourism, that's another aspect. There are a range of alternative tourisms that, that, that tap into the restoring of motivations and desires. Uh, as I say, uh, so... And here, for instance, with slow tourism, I mean, the current idea of travel is that we're, we're, you, you go to an airport and then you're crammed into this tube, uh, of course, in an economic seat, uh, whereby, of course, you don't have any legroom anymore because the first class needs so much space by now. So, uh, so we're basically packed like sardines in a tin to be like teleported in a matter of hours to a completely different place. And there your holiday starts. This is a classic myth of travel. I mean, it is like, it, it, the whole of, the whole notion of getting there is like ignored. How about, how about thinking of getting there as part of your holiday and travel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's complicated sometimes, but why, how about the challenges of traveling as being fun? Mm-hmm. As, as not being like, oh, this is a bother. I can't be bothered. Let's cram into the tube and teleport. No, let's say, hey, this is part of traveling. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's for some a good story. I don't know. But basically interrogate those desires. And recognizing that place matters. Mm-hmm. Look at which other stories are possible, because stories, they animate desires. We are actually quite unrational human beings. I mean, we believe we're very rational, but we aren't really. A lot of the things we do, actually, when you dig down into it, have to do with uh, our uh, emotions, our desires, our longings, fundamentally irrational. And most often, where we're trying to appease desires that are sort of in the air, that have come to us as part of our culture and society. Because not only are we, of course, fundamentally rational, we're also fundamentally social human beings. So we need to recognize that we are part of society. And and, and the bus of society is, and here I'm generalizing rather badly, but still, the bus of society, roughly speaking, is this capitalist bus, right? More, growth, better, you know? I mean, growth is so assumed, so implicit in everything we do. Just think of your own home appliances. Think of your own house. Think of your own clothes. Think of the stuff you wear. Think of the electric gadgetry that you buy. I mean, how how I mean, I still have my Nokia brick from the from the late early two thousands, and, and my kids look at me and say like, "What's wrong with you?" It actually works mm-hmm. amazingly. It receives and can send phone calls. Mm-hmm. Perfect. But I mean, it's completely unacceptable to use it. And actually, I can't I can't use it. I mean, I, I can't cope in society anymore only with that. So mm-hmm. I have a smartphone. Yes, thanks. That that's really interesting. And and what comes through this is that stories that the, the stories that we tell or are are uh, told um, require some critical self reflection in that sense. And also, I think what emerges from your article is that the tourism then as a, a fundamental fundamentally place based and relational practice mm-hmm. can then also be understood and practiced differently. So tourism has the potential 
as as you state in the article, to realize earthly attachment mm -hmm. and to make every place meaningful. And and one of the three possible destinies for tourism that you then mention, indeed, is um, stay home tourism yeah. or non-carbon travel. Mm -hmm. And these indeed seem to be very tangible and applicable visions of a, what, I, what I think are optimistic views of future tourism. What does it mean to develop earthly attachments here at home? Yep, yep. Now this is a this is a, another thick and rich question, <laughs> and I think I think what is very fundamental is that I'm not advocating critical self-reflection and some chastising. You know, oh we're so bad. Oh no, we have to stop. No, I'm really just talking about enriching perspective, yeah. adding more, to realizing that there is so much more than what we have come adapted thinking about and come to be adapted realizing. Like as you just said, I mean, don't we need to get out of the rain and dark in the Netherlands? What do you mean rain and dark in the Netherlands? It's Icelandic summer here all year around. I mean, the rain is great. What's wrong with rain? I mean, the, the trees need rain. I mean, rain is great. It's just other types. I mean, so holidaying, holidaying as in, as in, as in taking on a, a rubber overall and rolling around in mud. Why not? I mean, I mean, the question is, what is it? And when you say, for instance, that travel is about, you know, going out there and meeting the distant other. Most of the time, people are just meeting themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just meeting the reflection in, in, in the mirror. It's very rare and it, it requires so much more uh, to to really meet the other than simply going there to take a peek. I mean, it's, it's such a, I mean, any anthropologist can tell you, I mean, the rite of passage for an anthropologist is that they need to be at least three years or something in a community to sort of qualify for, for, for a job as anthropologist. I don't agree with that. But anyway, uh, but again, it comes back to just enriching the perspective and realizing that so much, many, many of the things maybe you have are, are right here, right around you. So many of the things that you seek out there may be right next to you. We have become adapted thinking that you need to go somewhere to get it, but it may be just here. So why not take a look? And here come the earthly attachments. Now, okay. <laughs> now, what is the earth? And here we come back to the problematic notion of the Anthropocene and the God's eye view and all that. The earth has revealed itself, let's say, to us in, in times of climate change. We, we realize that, oh boy, that thing we call the environment, the earth out there, which we have sort of like seen from a satellite so far and, and, and just like assumed was always there as a given. It's actually just doing stuff that can fundamentally alter our life conditions and everything. We've always known that, actually. Societies have always fundamentally been implicated with the environment. It's always been like this. But now in the Anthropocene, we're thinking about humanity as a whole, climate change as a global phenomena. You know, it's, it's, it's an Earth. It's a, the planet emerges as an entity that somehow has a role to play. Now, how does that entity reveal itself? It can only do so in, in place-specific encounters. It can only do so in, in moments and, and, and in flashes and in sort of peeking in and peeking through whatever it is that we do. Uh, we, we can never comprehend the Earth as a whole. Nobody's going to do that. It's, it's an illusion. It's the satellite illusion. What is often claimed as the, uh, as the, as the pivotal moment for the environmental movement when the astronauts on, on the Apollo sent back this picture of the blue marble or blue planet. Yeah, pivotal moment. Yeah, sure. And it fomented basically a concern for planet Earth. But then we need to understand what it is. What is this Earth? Here, my geography training kicks in very helpfully because to realize all the intricate processes that go together to weave a place, weave an ecosystem and a socio-material ecosystem that we call a place. Very complex. 
and not only complex here and now, but also through the depths of time. And it's it's very fascinating, and I explore that in, in my book, which, of course, the article bases on, called Developing Earthly Attachments in the Anthropocene. Uh, and there I explore a few instances of how, how we can sort of incorporate even deep time. Uh, one scholar, Marcia Björner, who wrote this book talked about timefulness, how, how thinking like a geologist can help save your world. You know, just when you realize the depth of time in everything and every place. Thinking about that in terms of evolution, for instance, biological evolution, or, or uh, it's fascinating to see how uh, the cumulative effect of, of deep time into into who we are and what we are at each other moment. So realizing this in place, sensing it, making sense of it, and get coming to appreciate it, this is a, that's about earthly attachment because then you attach to this elusive thing called the earth in these momentary momentary attachments here and there. Wonderful, and thank you so much. I really like this um, call to conduct more speculative and creative research. I think we definitely need more of that. Many thanks, Ed, Edward, for this interview. Uh, I think your work and your propositions on future tourism within the context of the Anthropocene, which you have very uh, well described in this in interview, seems to be ever more pressing. So many thanks also to the Tourism Geography podcast listeners for tuning in and keep an eye on our future podcast episodes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Tourism Geographies podcast. We look forward to you joining us again next week. I'm Marcia Rudolfsen. Bye for now.